as Pastor Jordan mentioned, we do have our prayer list. If you did not get one, we did run out, but I, we made new copies. So there's a bunch back in the um, foyer right when you walk in. And we want to encourage you just to take time this week to read over these things, to be praying for um, our your leadership team from First Baptist Social Way. Please pray for us. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, we, we need it. I, I'll never forget, I had a, a man one time came up to me after a service and said, hey, would you mind if I prayed for you? And I was like, mind, you're supposed to be praying for me. I mean, you're, you're supposed to do that. So please, so we want to be praying for our leadership. We want to be praying for our ministries um, and our leaders and just praying that we'd be able to start our ministries back and also that we would not grow weary. Let's not grow weary and just continue to, to persevere. We want to pray for the lost all around us, for the lost in our family, friends, our circle, that God has placed us for the loss in our nation and in the world. We want to pray for so many needs within our church for Daryl Solomon and Miss Sheila, Brother Bill and Miss Susie. I want to pray for Joe Clifford. Um, they come, her and her husband Steve come in the first service, and she was diagnosed this week um, with ovarian cancer for the third time in five years and is having surgery on Wednesdays. So we want to be praying for her and for Steve. We want to continue to pray for Miss Lucille. Um, just, just pleading with God for her, for Brother Cam Lang and Miss Janet. He's doing better, so we're thankful for that. I want to continue to pray for her, though, and for Miss Carmen Cowart, Miss Miss Bonner, uh, Miss Reba, Cynthia Wolf of our church, and um, so many other different needs all around us um, that we have. Those inside and outside, I want to pray for. Do you see needs outside the church? Um, mine and Misty's nephew, Bryson Cowart, was born this Tuesday. Um, five weeks early and had a lot of difficulty and um, praise the Lord he came off the ventilator yesterday and is making some improvements so we are just so thankful for that and continue to pray for him want to pray for our nation when, it, when we think about the coronavirus think about national and state leaders when we think about um, our military men and women around the world and then think about injustices in the world that we live in want to be praying for those related to whether it be race, whether it be abortion, sex trafficking, the orphan, the widow, so many injustices in our world that we are commanded by God to pray for and be involved in and lend our voices to, and then for missionaries and missions, praying for the persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world, praying for missionaries like Gary and Dina Pate to Ecuador, Pastor Subarau and Solomon, Pastor Solomon in India. Um, we added uh, Dan and Lori Fuller. Maybe you don't know them, but those uh, Lori is Sherry's sister. They are missionaries in Thailand. Now, Sherry sent me the exact location, and there's no way I would have ever got that correct. So I just left it with Thailand because I would have butchered that um, severely. But we want to um, pray and add Dan and Lori to our, our prayer list and be praying for them. And, and I know there's so many other needs represented across um, our faith family, and if you want um, an individual added to the, the prayer list, please let us know, and we want to be praying. But let's just take time right now just to, to seek the Lord uh, together. So let's, let's pray. Father, we think about the reality that we live in a needy world. As, as Kyle just talked about, so many people in difficulty and open to hearing message of the gospel and lord we are needy there's so many needs in our lives so many things god that that come into our lives that we what we don't ask for um we don't expect they're not a part of our plans for our lives or our family's lives and yet lord they're here and we know lord that not one thing enters our lives without first going through your hand 
So if it has touched us or is touching us or others, Lord, it's because you have allowed it. Therefore, Lord, we want your will. Show us your glory. God, show forth, Lord, your power, your mercy, your grace, your, your um, Lord, just, just patience, giving wisdom and, and help and, and hope in so many different situations. God, we ask for your wisdom. As your word says, if we lack it, we can ask you for it and you'll give it to us. And God, we need your wisdom. And, and navigating through this world that we live in, we need your wisdom, Father. But also, Lord, we need your, your spirit to empower us to live according to your word and do the things that your word says, the things that we know, Lord, to be true and to, to yield ourselves to, to your Holy Spirit. Father, we just recognize, Lord, every need, Lord, in, on this sheet and those represented this, in this place of worship today, but we also recognize, God, that you have no needs. You are never in need of anything. Therefore, because you are not in need of anything, you are able to meet our needs. You're able to work everything in our lives for good. So do that, we ask. And Lord, speak into our hearts and lives in the next few moments, Lord, by your word for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open with me to Revelation chapter 1. So Revelation 1, and welcome to week 2 of our series in Revelation, where we are walking through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what we know is the revelation, um, this revelation that we have is not just a revelation of end time prophecies, but it's also a revelation of a person, meaning in Revelation, we come face to face with Jesus Christ. We come face to face with his greatness, with his majesty, with his glory. And Revelation offers us, as we're going to see today, a breathtaking view of Jesus that challenges our human conceptions. And what I mean by that is this. Um, in his book, Yawning at Tigers, Drew Dyke cautions American Christians that in our therapeutic culture, we tend to prefer aspects of God that are most comforting to us. Meaning, we prefer a God who is loving, who is merciful, who is gracious, who is powerful to work as we would have Him to work. And at the same time, we conveniently leave out other aspects of God that don't seem celebratory to us. Meaning, we leave out things like His holiness, His justice, His wrath, just to name a, a few. And there's a strong likelihood that there might be some under the sound of my voice this morning, whether here or online, who are guilty of creating a safe, predictable version of Jesus who acts and thinks just like you do. Meaning your version of Jesus never contradicts you. In fact, he is right along with you. Everything that you think and do, Jesus is like, rock on. That's exactly what I would do. And if we're not careful, that is what we have done. And then we come to the book of Revelation, on the other hand, that unveils a cosmic, exalted Jesus whose presence is awe-inspiring and whose presence is worthy of our worship. And it's interesting that John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the one who knew Jesus was most acquainted with Jesus, is startled by the vision of Jesus and he falls down at Jesus' feet as though dead. Meaning, when Jesus 
confronts and, and opens John's eyes to see him. John doesn't go, hey, man, what's up? How you doing? It's been a while. Let's do our secret handshake. No, he falls down in the presence of this one as if, oh, my, I have seen his glory and I'm going to die. May we not miss this. So on the island of Patmos, persecuted, punished because of his commitment to Christ, John received this amazing vision where he is commanded by God to write down what he saw, to share it with the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and let me just, again, remind us that John was not writing this book in order to um, inspire a Left Behind series, or two, or three, or ten. He was not writing to um, encourage us to do fill-in-the-blank charts and maps about the end time to try to figure it all out. Let me be very clear today, again, John was writing these words to call the church then and to call the church now to endure in the midst of hardship and suffering. That's the point, to endure in the midst of hardship and suffering. And maybe you're here going, well, I don't like hardship and suffering. Well, buckle up because it's coming. Buckle up, brothers and sisters. Therefore, get this, the first century church didn't get caught up in overanalyzing this book. In fact, this book was written, get this, so that um, it was sent to the seven churches. What they did is they would sit down, someone would stand up and would, would read all 22 chapters, the whole book of Revelation. They would read it in one setting and then they would rejoice and worship the God who was in control over their suffering and pain. That's the way this book was set up, not just to be broken up the way we do it, but to be read in one setting for brothers and sisters. And what a revelation it is. This morning we come to one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus that has ever been written. And let me just begin by saying this beautiful vision of Christ is not a future view of him. It is a present view, meaning this isn't a picture of what Jesus will be or what he will do. This is a picture that says what he is like now, what he is doing right now for his church in the 21st century. And this portrait of Christ that we're going to look at this morning is absolutely beneficial for us. We need to see this Jesus. I think of the words of Pastor Sam Storms who says, the encounter of the human soul with divine beauty is more than merely enjoyable. It is profoundly transforming. We do not simply behold beauty. Beauty takes hold of us and challenges the allegiances of our hearts. Beauty calls us to reshape our lives and exposes the shabbiness of conduct. Beauty has the power to disclose from our hearts the grip of moral and spiritual ugliness. The soul's engagement with beauty elicits love and forges in us a new affection that no earthly power can overcome. So we're not just viewing beauty today. We're praying that this beauty would take hold of us. In fact, we're praying that it would transform us. This is the point. This vision was meant to be a catalyst for change to the first century church and for us. So as we gaze upon this portrait of Jesus today, my prayer is this. If you are in this room and you are lost, that you will be found. If you are weak, that you will find strength. If you are hurting, that you will be comforted. If you are confused, that you will find clarity. And if if you are here desiring sin, that you will walk out these doors desiring a Savior. Or even find Him right here in this place. 
So let us open this word and gaze upon the one who is the first and the last and whose beauty is absolutely breathtaking for us to behold. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read verses 9 through verse 20 of Revelation 1 together. And let me, I said in the first service, I should have said it in this service. For those who made it back this week, thank you for coming back after our, um, our journey through the introduction to Revelation last week. I know that wasn't always great and amazing and and um, applicable in our lives, but uh, today I promise you it will be. So verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God speak to us through his word today by his spirit. You may be seated. So as we discussed last week, there, there were difficult circumstances um, being faced by the first century church. And the seven churches here in Asia Minor, Christians were being arrested. They were losing their family and their income. They were being beheaded. They were being, their whole families were being taken into the Roman Colosseum and fed to lions and other predatory animals, all because of their faith. The letter to um, Dognatus is the work of an unknown author written in A.D. 130, describes Christians to the Romans. And just listen to how Christians in the second century, early second century, are described to the Romans. They dwell in their own countries simply as sojourners. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, but will be restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They possess few things, yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, but in their very dishonor, they are glorified. And those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. Let me say something, and this is a term that you've heard Pastor Jordan use just two weeks ago. This is cultural Christianity in the first century church. A little different than our culture, huh? 
This is what cultural Christianity looked like in the first century church. We have come a long way. So what I want us to do today, brothers and sisters, I want us to unpack three ways that Jesus acts as revealed in this majestic revelation. So let's, let's get to work. First of all, He, Jesus, comforts His people in great tribulation. When we're looking at who He is, Jesus comforts His people in great tribulation. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Look at verse 11 saying, Jesus says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So think about verse 9. Through verse 9, we see three reasons for the tribulation of the early church. So from this one verse, verse 9, three reasons why the early church were being um, persecuted, why they had tribulation. First, they suffered just for the sake of Christ. They suffered because they were a part of Christ, because they were in Christ, because they identified with Christ. And that kind of suffering is distinctly Christian. Meaning, they weren't suffering because they disobeyed Jesus. They were actually suffering because they had obeyed Jesus. And what is clear from the first century church is that when a person comes to Christ, it doesn't mean that all their troubles go away. In fact, for many of them, their troubles were just getting started. Like in a, in a spiritual sense, new troubles like never before. Troubles actually increased. But then they also suffered because they endured in Christ. It says the patient endurance that are in Jesus, meaning that the longer they endured for Jesus, the more they suffered. The way out for many in the early church was just to be abandoned ship or to turn their back and to say, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm out. Things got too tough. But that is not the calling of the true child of God. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 13, where Jesus said, but those who endure to the end will be saved. Jesus said those who make it to the end will be saved. And what he doesn't mean is this, if you work hard enough on your own, you will be saved. But what he's saying is the true child of God will make it to the end. The true child of God will endure. And then they suffered because they proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So this is a picture. Um, get this, John is... On the island of Patmos. This isn't a vacation island. This is an island of Roman punishment. And he was on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Meaning, don't miss this, there is a price to be paid when Christians proclaim Jesus. There's a price to be paid when Christians proclaim Jesus, which is why most Christians in the American culture keep their mouths closed. There's a price to be Paid. And then think about that phrase, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It appears four times in the book of Revelation. Here, chapter 1, verse 9. It appears again in chapter 6, verse 9. It appears in chapter 12, verse 17. And then again in chapter 20, verse 4. The word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And every time it appears, get this, it refers to Christians who are suffering because they are witnessing for the word of God and for Jesus Christ. This is the picture here. And there are many places around the world, brothers and sisters, where proclaiming the word of God still leads to being rejected by your family. It leads to beatings. It leads to imprisonment. And it leads to death. Those of us who have been to India, we could tell stories after stories of those that we have heard, brothers and sisters who we have met, who that is a part of their daily lives as believers. Daily lives as believers. This, our last trip, 
Last year, we met, I think, three or four women in this one church who were probably 70 or 80 years old. And here's what they said. We go out every day, and yes, we're persecuted and we're threatened, but we really don't believe they're going to lay their hands on us, so we just keep going. I mean, just think about the power of that. And then think about the way that we hide behind our comforts and our freedoms here in America. Brothers and sisters, God laid something upon my heart this morning. I want to be honest. In the first service, I didn't share it because of fear. And at the end, during the invitation, God said, you coward, and I had to share it. But I'm going to share this, and I'm going to, I'm going to risk getting in trouble. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, the word I hear over and over and over again the last five months is, I, I just don't feel safe. I just, I'm not, we're not coming to church because we just don't feel safe. We just don't feel safe. And I, what I'm not saying is I'm not encouraging us just to be um, absolutely wild in the way that we respond and, and not care about people's safety and not care about their health. But here's what I'm saying. If we, every Christian goes home and locks their doors and never goes out, how is the world going to get the light and the word of God? Maybe, just maybe, the enemy is using this to rock Christians asleep to where we as Christians get this, begin to worship safety instead of worshiping the Savior. Imagine first century Christians going, hey man, you come to church tomorrow? No, I don't feel safe because of um, you know, just my, my health. I don't feel safe about the virus. Oh, that's cute. That, that's That's cute. You don't feel safe because of virus, but guess what? Our brothers and sisters today, they're facing a virus and they're facing persecution and guarantee you, guess where they are? Guess where they are? They are meeting together because that is more important. And the point is, and I'm not trying to get myself in trouble. If I do, please send all emails to Pastor Jordan. He will gladly take those on. But here's the point. If we're not careful, we as a Christian society, we worship safety when Jesus never promised us safety. He doesn't promise us safety. Jesus never said, come and follow me and I'm going to lead you through a land of lollipops and a land of flowers and a land where nothing bad will ever happen to you. And we go, yippee, let's go. That doesn't happen. Jesus said, follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and let's, let's get going. That's what Jesus tells us, Christians, it's time for us to wake up. So P Patmos was an island of criminals. And yet John makes it clear, my only crime is I spoke the gospel, the word of God, and I, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this tribulation, when we look at verse 11, Jesus commands John, write this letter and send it to the churches so that they may be encouraged. So that they would endure and not grow weary. Our Savior, Jesus, he comforts his people in great tribulation. But secondly, he gives his people a glorious revelation. He gives his people a glorious revelation. So John, as our brother and partner in tribulation, gives us this amazing vision of Jesus. And I want to lay before you, and we're going to kind of belabor this a little bit. I want to lay before you seven pictures of Christ from this vision. And I could do way more than seven, but because seven is a picture of perfection and completion all throughout the book of Revelation, I want to lay before us seven because that just kind of makes sense. And so I think about the words of David Hawking. When thinking about this vision, he says, This is no ordinary look at the man we know from the Gospels as Jesus. To say that his appearance is unique is an understatement. His appearance is supernatural, a glorious description that could be given to God Alone. So think about this, this picture that we see of Jesus. What is he doing? Seven, seven things. 
Number one, he is reigning in power over his church. He's reigning in power over his church. Look at verses 12 and 13. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So let's start backwards, and, and then we'll move forward. So John saw one like the Son of Man. If you remember that same expression in Daniel 7 that we looked at just about a, a month ago, it speaks of to humanity, it speaks of authority. It was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. So when John said, I saw and saw one like the Son of Man, what he is saying is this. I saw someone standing in the midst of the lampstands, which we found, found out in verse 20 is the churches. Son of Man standing in the midst of the churches, and this one who's standing in the midst of the churches has all authority over all people, has authority over everything, and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. And don't miss this. He turns and sees Jesus. And Jesus isn't standing in front of his church. He's not standing beside his church. He's standing in the middle of his church. Meaning, church, whatever we go through, he is with us. Whatever we're walking through, he's in the midst of it with us. He's in the middle of it. He has placed himself in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our endurance. He is with us. He knows what we're going through. Any detail of your life, maybe people around us today don't know what we're going through. He knows. He knows what we're going through. He's watching. He's working in the midst of his church. And in a sense, his presence would have encouraged brothers and sisters to keep going in the same way his presence with us should encourage us to keep going. He's not far off. He's deeply committed to acting for us as the one who has all authority. So he is reigning in power over his church. Secondly, he is interceding with passion for his church. Jesus is interceding. He's praying for his church we read in verse 13, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So the next thing that Jesus sees of this son of man was that he was clothed with a robe and a golden sash. This picture is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, it almost always referred to the high priest who represented the people before God. Six of the seven times in the Old Testament that a long robe like this is mentioned, it refers to the clothing that the high priest wore when he entered into the most holy place one time a year to sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And this golden chest or this golden sash on his chest shows us two things. Number one, it shows us that it's high. He's not wearing this around his waist. He's wearing it around his chest. It's high, meaning his position is as the high priest, the highest of all high. And the fact that it's gold shows us that there is a preciousness to it, a greatness to it, and there's a cost associated with it. Jesus is our high priest representing us before God. And don't miss it. Look at Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. Because what that tells us is Jesus right at this moment is praying for you. And he's praying for me. And Jesus wants God's will in your life more than you want it and more than I want it. And he is interceding and he is praying and he is seeking God's will over our lives even in this 
moment. He's interceding with passion for his church. Third, he is holy and the purifier of his church. So Jesus is holy and he's the one who purifies his church. Look at verses 14 and 15. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So when you combine these pictures, white hair, eyes like fire, feet like bronze, it reveals that Jesus is purging, he is disciplining, and he is purifying his church. Christ, he is pure, and he is eternal, which is what we see in the white hair. It's the same picture that we saw in Daniel 7. His eyes are like fire, meaning his eyes see every part of us. Jesus' eyes are searching and penetrating, looking in the depth of who we are. Nothing escapes his gaze. In a few weeks, when we get to the letter at Thyatira, we see the same image of Jesus with eyes like fire. And Jesus says to the church, I know everything about you. In one standpoint, that's so comforting. Jesus knows everything about you and me. In the next breath, that is scary. Because Jesus knows everything about you and me. Praise God he loves us. And praise God he's seeking our purity. The Bible says his feet are like bronze. And by the way, all the, the temple furnishing, tabernacle furnishings that dealt with sin were all made of bronze. As a way of God removing that. So Jesus is removing sin from our lives and producing purity in us. Listen to what Ephesians 5 verses 26 and 27 says. It says that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of water by the word. That he, Jesus, might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, should be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's producing, he's, he's purifying the church so that he can produce and present a holy church back to himself. And you might be saying, well, what's that got to do with, what does holiness have to do with any of it? Holiness is kind of boring. Well, read Hebrews 12, 14. Because Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, you will not see God. Without holiness, you will not see God. And that's not saying that you have to be holy in and of yourself. That's saying that only he, the Holy One, can make you holy. But without his holiness, without his work in our lives, we'll never see God. He is holy and the purifier of his church. Number four, he is communicating loudly, loudly with his church. Verse 15 says his voice was like the roar of many waters. It's kind of weird. In verse 10, his voice was like a trumpet. Now his voice is like the roar of many waters. And Jesus, the point is he's speaking to his church and it's being done with authority. Therefore, as a church 2,000 years removed from this picture, it's clear to us or should be clear to us that our only source of authority, even today, is the word of God. Our source of authority in this church is not your opinion or my opinion. It is this very word. Think about this. Me as a pastor, my authority does not come by my life experiences. My authority doesn't come with, by how smart I am or how smart I think I am. It doesn't come with how well I communicate or think I communicate. My authority as a minister of the gospel only comes with how I handle this book and how I present this book to you. 
That's the only authority I have. If I step away from this book, I no longer have any authority whatsoever. It is all gone. This is our authority. This is the only source of it. And here's the, the deal. Every single one of us in this room who has placed ourselves today under the hearing of God's word cannot doubt the reality of God speaking. Even if you don't even believe. If you're here and you say, I don't even believe this, I guarantee if you've been here, if there's ever been a time you've been here, you knew God was speaking to you. You knew God was speaking to you. You might have said, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I don't want to do what he's telling me to do. But you know, when you hear God's word, there's no doubt he's speaking. Our God is speaking. And his voice, according to John, is like the thundering of, um, of Niagara Falls. I think about a mission trip that me and Larry went to, and we found ourselves at Niagara Falls. And let me just say, when this water is coming down, you don't have intimate conversations at Niagara Falls. And we're not standing there and Larry goes, hey, man, I want to have a heart to heart with you no all that all you hear when you're at niagara falls is the rushing of that water in the same way the picture is god's word is rushing forth into our hearts and lives and we cannot doubt that god is speaking now what we can doubt and what we better evaluate is whether we're listening and whether we're obeying we better evaluate, are we listening and are we obeying Him? He is communicating loudly with His church. Number five, He is protecting against the enemies of His church. He's protecting against the enemies of His church. Verse 16 says, In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The right hand in Scripture symbolizes power and authority. The image of him holding stars symbolizes or signifies possession and protection. But the question is, who are these seven stars? Now, in verse 20, Jesus said these seven stars are the seven angels to the seven churches. But who are they? Now, some commentators have said these seven stars, seven angels, are actually the pastors to these seven churches. And I tell you, I so want to take that and believe that interpretation because I so want to be called an angel. I mean, that would be so cool to take that interpretation. But here's what I know. Misty is forever calling Malachi her baby angel. And most of the time when, he, when she calls him that, it's because he just got himself in trouble. So any form of me being an angel, that's it. That's because I've messed it up and that's the best sarcastic comment you could ever give. Here's the deal. Every other time, that the word angel is used in Revelation it actually refers to angels. So we're just going to say this means angels that God has, to, has given to protect and to minister to his church in ways that maybe we can't even see, but yet we praise him for. And so the point is, in his right hand, the glorified Christ is in complete control. I think of the words of one scholar, William Barclay, who said, The hand of Christ is strong enough to uphold the heavens, and yet it is tender enough to wipe away our tears. The hand of Christ is strong enough to uphold the heavens and yet tender enough to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Yet let's not stop. The Lord who has the stars in his hand also has a sword that's coming out of his mouth, a two-edged sword. And he uses it to defend his people. And this sword indicates power that cuts both ways, meaning it gives life and it takes away life. In fact, it is the word of Christ, ultimately, which by, um, and, and by which all the enemies of Christ, all the enemies of us, will be slain. When we read through the book of Revelation, the word of Christ comes out, all of his enemies, done. Just like that. Basically, the, the battle of Armageddon goes like this. Jesus says, dead, done. That, that is it. That is the, the picture, and that is the point. 
He is protecting against the enemies of his church. But then six, he is reflecting his glory through his church. He's reflecting his glory through his church. Verses 16 and 17, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John saw the face of Christ and it was like the sun in its full strength. John borrowed the expression here from the book of Judges. I have it on, your, on the screen, Judges 5.31. And in Judges, the ones that love God are called or said to be like the blazing sun. Here in Revelation, Jesus is the blazing sun. So what's the point? The point is that the Lord shines in his church and the Lord shines through his church. We who love him are revealing his glory and his light to the dark world in which we live. And we'll come back to that in just a minute, but don't miss this. John, who followed Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who laid his head on Jesus at the, this, the Last Supper, is now in the presence of Jesus for the first time in 60 years. And the first thing he doesn't, he doesn't do is take out a camera and say, I've got to snap this. I've got to put this online. No, he falls to the ground because of this is the power and majesty of our Savior. Don't miss who He is. Don't miss His glory. Don't miss His majesty. Don't miss His holiness. And then number seven, He is transmitting His life to His church. He's, he's transmitting His life to His church. Look at verses 17 and 18. He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So in Scripture, when someone comes face to face with God, the normal reaction is hit the ground and fear that you're going to die. This is what we see all throughout Scripture, coming in contact face to face with the glory of God. It is falling to the ground. Oh, God, don't kill me. Don't do it. And Jesus here in this picture gives us a reason not to be afraid by laying his hand on John saying, fear not, and then describing who he is. I'm the first and the last, and then also describing what he's done. Hey, I was dead, and I'm dead no more. In fact, Jesus says, I am alive forevermore. Therefore, believers, we don't need to fear suffering or even death because Jesus has endured them both, and he has conquered them. He has conquered them. He's victorious over them. Because he's alive, he is able to give us life. And not just temporary life, but eternal life. And his touch is a reassuring touch. It's a life-giving touch. I don't know if you've ever felt the touch of Christ, but there's nothing like it. There's nothing like his touch and what it does. And then John tells us about the keys of death and Hades. And this is really, really cool, and I'm going to fly through this, but just, just hear this. There are five keys that are mentioned in Scripture. The keys of death in Hades, here. The keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, 19. The keys of knowledge in Luke 11. The key of the throne of David in Revelation 3. And the key to the bottomless pit, pit excuse me, in Revelation 9. Five different keys mentioned in the New Testament, and don't miss this, Jesus holds them all. He holds them all. And unlike my wife, he doesn't lose them. He knows exactly where those keys are. Hey, it's okay to laugh at that. Lighten up a little bit. He holds the keys. He knows where they are. They are never lost. He is holding them. But think about the keys of death in Hades. 
Death claims the body. Hades claims the soul, but not unless Jesus says so. Why? Because he has the keys. We need, as believers, never to fear death because as a believer, when you close your eyes in death, you open your eyes in the presence of your Savior. This is our Savior. This is him. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. He gives his people a glorious revelation. And then lastly, he calls his people to a gracious identification. He calls his people to a a gracious identification. So again, Christ is standing in the middle of his church. He's identifying with us in everything that we go through. And the point is clear. First of all, he is present with us. Let me say it again. Jesus is in our midst. He is with us now and he will be with us forever. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. If you are walking through something difficult today, Jesus is with you. If you are walking and will walk through something difficult this week, Jesus will not let you walk alone. He is with you. He's in the middle of your pain. He's in the middle of your suffering. He's in the middle of anything that you go through. He is with you. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you to walk um, through it on your own. He will never leave you. He is with us, present with us. But then secondly, he has a purpose for us. Don't miss this. In the first chapter of Revelation, the church is described as a lampstand. Now, follow with me here. Lamps have one purpose. What's the purpose of a lamp? Shine light. I mean, some of you, I thought, the purpose of a lamp, to be really pretty. Maybe that's some of your, but the whole point of a lamp is to shine light. That's the whole point to give light when a lamp is not shining light it is not fulfilling its purpose which begs the question are you and am i fulfilling our purpose well what's our purpose look at matthew 5 14 and 16 jesus said you are the light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden in the same way let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven Jesus, in John 8, 12, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. Now Jesus is calling his followers to be the light of the world. There's a connection between him and us where he infuses in us his light. Therefore, now we are light in the midst of darkness, and we become not just worshipers of Christ, we become witnesses of Christ. We're witnessing for him. We're letting our light shine forth in the midst of darkness. Is your light shining? Is your light on? Is your light on in the midst of this world? Don't just turn it on and lock your doors. We need to, the world around us needs to see it. And then we need to continue to see him. The world needs to see him in us, and we need to see him. I want to end today by calling us to look to Jesus and don't stop looking. Let me end with the words of Pastor John Piper. Just listen to what he says. This morning, gaze on this. He is among the lampstands, the churches, as the Son of Man, the one with power over the nations and with everlasting dominion and glory. He is the great high priest that has put away the sins of his people once and for all. He is He is as aged and wise and mature as the great white crown ancient of days, yet with eyes that are aflame with fire of youth, 
and energy and hope and exhilaration for his unstoppable plans for you and for this church and for the world. Gaze upon Jesus. Until he returns, brothers and sisters, and we see him face to face, don't stop looking at him and his word. This is him. This is who he is. This isn't who we hope he is. This isn't who who we think he is. This is who he has revealed himself to be. This is him. The question is, is he yours? Is he yours? Is this your Savior? Is he your Lord? If he's not, my prayer is that today would be the day of salvation for you. Today would be the day that you hear the word of God speaking clearly. As that rushing of mighty waters, you hear the word of God clearly. The Holy Spirit calling you to salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call the musicians forward, and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever God is telling you to do in this moment, do it. Father, we approach you. We thank you for this magnificent, beautiful picture of our Savior and Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to us. And we have this source of authority in our hands, your word. Lord, help us as those who know you to follow you, to keep looking to Jesus, to let our light shine as we let your word shine in us by your word and through your spirit. God, do a work in our lives. Help us to listen to you more, to obey you more. But we also, Lord, pray for any under the sound of my voice today who do not know you. And in this moment, Lord, they know without a doubt the Holy Spirit of God is telling them that they don't know you. They know they're not following you. They're not trusting you, Jesus. And we pray that right now in this holy moment that you would call people out of death and give them life. That you would call people out of darkness into your marvelous light. That you would call people, Lord, out of distress into your hope. And Lord, may any, in the sound of my voice in this moment, God, may they cry out to you, Jesus, confessing you as Savior and Lord. For your word says, whoever, anyone, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Save those, O God, who do not know you. In Jesus' name, amen.